Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a parenting podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. Just a reminder, this podcast mission statement is that we are dedicated to educating and empowering you, the listener, to raise inclusive kids. With that in mind, I am super excited to tell you about today's guest. It is Kate Messner. She is a author of a, a million and a half books, but uh, specifically, we're talking about her book, Chirp, which I had the pleasure of getting to read ahead of time. And Chirp, it is about a girl, Mia, who moves back uh, to her hometown after being in Boston. And she has a secret and she's had something that happened at her gymnastics gym that she hasn't told anybody. So she's wrestling with that. It's also summer. There's a mystery going on at her grandma's cricket farm. And there's a lot of excitement, adventure, mystery, and personal growth development. I think you, the listener, and your kids are going to get a lot out of it. Very excited for you to hear it. Kate has also written some fantastic books that are coming out later this summer, History Smashers, um, which are telling the true stories of what has happened in history. Specifically, our first two books are about the Mayflower and the women's suffrage movement and what really happened, some of the uncomfortable truths that our kids uh, may not be exposed to in their textbooks. So it's really great. I think you're really going to enjoy my discussion with Kate. So stick around. Be right back with her after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is author Kate Messner. I'm very excited. Kate is rapidly becoming one of my favorite authors. Kate, how are you doing today? I'm terrific. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you so much for asking. And, you know, I said rapidly becoming one of my favorite authors because I've I've read Chirp and I could not put it down. I really couldn't. I absolutely loved it. And we're going to dive into that. I think I read it cover to cover in an entire weekend. So I was very excited. Um, and But one of the things that I do like to ask when I've got parents specifically that come on the show um, is what do you think makes a good parent? Boy, that's a great one. So my kids are older now. We're sort of at the other end of that. Um, I have an 18-year-old and a 24-year-old. Okay. And um, I think that the biggest thing looking back on, on the years when we were raising our kids is being engaged and being honest with them are probably the two biggest things. You know, we um, always took our kids places with us and encouraged them to be curious about the world around them. And uh, as a result, I can, I can still see that in them today. You know, they're both people who love to learn and, and love to explore and just find so much joy in that. And, and we're really grateful for that. So probably those two things, fostering curiosity and exploration and, and being honest with kids too. I love that you brought up the honesty aspect too, because something that I've noticed being a parent of two little ones, so mine, my kids are five and three, is finding the the oh how how did I describe it? It's the the layers of authenticity, right? So it's it's um, when you're talking about a subject or a topic that people may traditionally think is difficult to to talk about, um, which we're actually going to get into uh, chirp with um, touching on the the Me Too movement as well. Um, when you find a topic or a perspective that people may say, well, that's not something you can bring to kids or how are you going to explain it to kids? And just being 
authentic and honest in the way in which it makes sense to them. So as they're asking questions or as you're bringing it up, being very transparent and not overcomplicating it, making it simple. And as they ask more questions as they get older, then you can add another layer onto that and then add another layer onto that. And really allowing them and affording them the space to feel that you are a trust cluster almost, that your house, your space, whatever that looks like, they can bring topics to you. They can talk about it because they know you're going to be honest with them. You're not going to ignore it or give them a, a, a BS answer. You're going to be very genuine and honest with them and, and give them the guidance that they're looking for, you know? Yeah, totally agree. I think that's critical. And I love the way you talked about the layers because I think that's yeah. really key with kids too. You know, when they first have questions about something that we might think of as Ooh, not something, you know, you talk about with kids, whether that's, you know, substance abuse or um, sex or, or whatever it is, uh, you can give a very simple, short answer to that question and wait to see if they keep asking. Sometimes that, that short answer is all they want for right now, and they'll come back later and ask more questions. And sometimes they'll ask a couple follow-ups. But um, when we were raising our kids, that was something we always tried to do is give a short, honest answer, let them have a little time to process that, and then they know they can always ask more, and they know you'll, you'll be there with, with truthful answers. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to almost wait a little bit to dive into it, but but this is a really good transition into talking about Chirp. And I don't want to spoil anything for anybody that's going to be purchasing the book and, and reading it um, and coming to it. But there are a couple moments in the book where we're talking about, um, you know, it's, it's, it's instances that allude to different um, topics that are prevalent in the media with the Me Too movement as it relates to, to younger girls and or women who are coming forward now speaking about their experiences as younger girls and teenagers and whatnot. And, and I have to say, you know, reading it as a father um, of two young kids, it was a topic where when I heard it in the news, thought, I don't even know how to start to begin that conversation at times with my kids. And my kids are five and three, but I want to be having this conversation now. So that way they can vocalize when they feel something's not right. And the way in which you worded the main characters and the supporting characters' experiences was written in such a way that was very, um, very um, authentic and very easy to understand that while they may not have had the language for what was happening, the characters could understand that something was amiss talking about, you know, someone coming down the beach and, and acting inappropriate or somebody in a gym acting inappropriate. I mean, it, it's, it's written in such a way that I was like, this, this is, a, of course, this is how one would describe these types of experiences. So I would really love to get your perspective on how did you approach writing those kind of two specific scenes that I'm thinking about. And I know, you know what I'm referencing. Um, for Chirp, but it just in general for this type of uh, young adult audience? Sure. Um, so I don't think I'm giving away too much of the story to say sure. that, um, for, for starters, Chirp is, is a lot of different things. It's a mystery set on a cricket farm. It's yes. a story about summer friendship and fun, but it's also a story that has elements of Me Too in it because the main character, Mia, at the beginning of the book is just moving back to Vermont where she lived before from Boston. And she's bringing with her a secret about something that happened at, at her gymnastics gym there. Um, and an assistant coach who was just 
showing her really inappropriate attention. And that was attention that as adults we would look at and recognize as somebody trying to groom a child for sexual abuse. Right. Um, you know, there were, there were these personal text messages and photos being sent and, you know, hugs that lasted too long and inappropriate back rubs and just things that we look at and say, oh, that's a problem. When those things happen to kids, they don't have that language to describe it. You know, they don't yeah. know what grooming is. They haven't read the documents from the Larry Nassar scandal in the, in the world of USA Gymnastics. And they don't know how predators operate. What they know when something happens is, oh, this feels icky. This is weird. This person is creepy. And right. that's the kind of language young people use when things like that are going on. So for me, in writing Chirp and writing about Mia's experiences, which were, as I mentioned, based in part on, um, on documents from the, the Larry Nasser um, sentencing, you know, a lot of the things right. that happen uh, with this assistant coach at Mia's gym were things that Larry Nasser did to gain the trust of the gymnast that he ultimately abused, the little gifts, the personal text messages, the secrets, things like that. Um, but Mia's experiences were also based on experiences that I had growing up as a child with a friend of our family. And, you know, looking back as an adult, I can say that's grooming behavior. As a child, I didn't have that language. I just had words like icky and creepy and weird, uh, you know, to talk about that. Um, so I think writing about this for kids, uh, a few things. First of all, you want to recognize that just because something isn't the very worst thing you can imagine doesn't mean it's okay. And we want to encourage kids to know that we're going to be there if they want to speak up, if they have something to say, if someone has made them feel uncomfortable, that's worth speaking up about. Even if they think, oh, maybe it's no big deal, or maybe people just tell me to be quiet. You don't want your kids thinking that. You want your kids to know they can come to you with any of those experiences, anything that happens and say, oh, this really made me uncomfortable. You know, kids right. need to recognize that consent applies to them too. And it's okay to say, oh, no, thanks. I don't want a hug and things like that. Yes. Yes. That's something that we've been, um, uh, you know, instructing, you know, and that's, that's, you know, part of that, I think the uh, hugging specifically, I'm going to focus on for a moment, right? Because I'm from Texas, growing up in, in Texas and in South, Southern hospitality, right? And respect your elders and blah, 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 blah. And that, that sets kids up for failure in a lot of those situations because they feel pressured to show attention when they truly are uncomfortable, whether because they feel that a relative or a friend is icky or they just are nervous. And then maybe that particular person is not has zero um, grooming or uh, negative attention uh, feelings, right? Maybe they're just totally innocent. But by a, by by stripping away a kid's individual right to choose when and how they show affection, you're setting them up for failure in a situation where someone is trying to take advantage of them. Right. You know? It can be very disempowering, and it's it's yes. tricky, right? Because you know, I've, I've been guilty of that, you know, oh, hug Uncle Jim or, or whoever. And, right. and um, you know, and, and certainly, you know, so often we're talking about perfectly good, lovely people with no ill intentions at all. But when we, when we do that, we are to a degree disempowering kids to yeah. say, you know, no, I don't want to do that. Or no, I don't want that kind of attention right now. Or no, please don't touch me like that. 
So um, I think I think consent is really important, even with young kids, that they know their bodies belong to them and they get to make those choices. Right. Absolutely. And I know that that's something we've been working on with both my kids, because I know that growing up myself, it was something where I truly had to, you know, I was told to, yeah, like, come on, hug. It's, it's rude. This, this is the language. It's rude. If you, you're being rude, right? Like that's the language that we're using, um, to disempower these kids is you're being rude. And then that's the type of language and behavior that can trigger uh, a very scary situation later in life. And so, um, we're, we're really focused on, and I'm, you know, it's awful. These things have happened, but I love that, but I love that we have resources like chirp where people and kids can see themselves in these characters to be able to identify and recognize the situations that are inappropriate. So they're familiar with it. And when they do encounter it, they have the language and they have the empowerment to stand up to it and to say no and to decline and really have autonomy over their own bodies because they should. Yeah, I should think so too. And it's interesting. Sometimes we get some pushback from adults with a book like Chirp. Uh, you know, people who are like, oh, it's not appropriate for kids to read about things like that. And I'll tell you what's less appropriate than having kids read about it <laughs> is having them experience it without ever having had a conversation with a trusted adult about the yes. fact that things like this can happen and people like that are out there. So, you know, I, I feel like sometimes as adults, we we get it in our head that it's our job to protect kids from stories about anything that might upset them. But Really, when we keep stories like Chirp and similar stories from kids, we're not protecting them from anything. We're leaving them alone and and disempowering them and not providing them with the information that could arm them. Yes, 100%. And, you know, and what I also love is, you know, we've got, we're in this age where we're recognizing we're recognizing patterns and behaviors um, that we didn't have the language or identi- identifiers for previously. So I think I think a lot of people walk around having these types of experiences or previously having had these types of experiences and thinking, well, what so-and-so is describing on the news, uh, which is like the worst possible scenario, didn't happen to me. Therefore, I must have been wrong in my feeling that something was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's actually, there's a scene like that in Chirp where mm-hmm. Mia hears, uh, you know, someone speak about what happened to them and she makes that connection and she recognizes this is not unlike what's happening to me or what happened to me with this assistant coach. But when she has a conversation about it, she says, well, it's not as bad. It's not as bad as what happened to you. Uh, you know, and the adult she's speaking with said, well, just because it could have been worse doesn't mean it's okay. And I think yes. we really need to remember that and make sure kids understand that too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, and this is what I love too, is kids are so much more equipped to handle situations as long as we give them the tools and the means with which to handle these situations. And it doesn't mean that we're uh, stripping away their quote unquote innocence or were, you know, exposing them to horrible things. We're simply allowing them to have all of the resources and tools, or at least understand where to go to get them. So that way they are better equipped, um, moving forward in their life, honestly. 
Absolutely. And allowing kids to feel seen too. Yes. You know, I can't yes. tell you how many times uh, Chirp came out in February before the, the world shut down. And I was on book tour for, for two weeks, traveling all over the country and visiting with thousands of kids to, you know, talk about Mia's story. And um, some of them, most of them had read just, you know, short excerpts, but some of them had had a chance to read the whole book. And I would have kids come up to me very quietly at the end of the presentation after everybody else had left and say, you know, something like that happened to me and I'm glad you wrote this story. And it's, yeah. you know, we're, when we share stories, we're, we're telling kids you're not alone. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I do want to get into a little bit um, more about the book too. And um, one of the things that I do love is um, Mia's relationship with her grandma and her grandma running the cricket farm and all the, the mystery and the adventure component and really trying to figure out what's going on at the cricket farm. Can we save the cricket farm? And, and it really feels like this kind of summer, summer adventure. And, and I would really, um, what I'd love to know truthfully, because there was a nice little note and I do not remember, um, a note at the end about the, the research you did for understanding cricket farming. And I don't remember the type of ology it's called, but I would love to know, um, your, interest in pursuing a book written around that type of content and then also a little bit of your experience in learning because you you came down to Austin for that in my if I'm not mistaken yeah I visited a couple different cricket farms uh doing research and and <laughs> you know when I describe this book to people one of the first things they say I'll say it's a mystery set on a cricket farm and they say I'm sorry what <laughs> uh, because you know cricket farms are not something we we always think of um, but to be honest with you, I, my interest in cricket farming and, and entomophagy, which is the practice of eating insects as food, um, started back in 2013. I read this report from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization called Edible Insects, which was basically a hundred plus page report uh, that said two things. One, insects are good for you. They have a lot of protein. And two, insects are good for the environment. They're way more sustainable to raise than other things many of us eat for protein, like cows and chickens and pigs. And so I was fascinated by this and uh, heard about these cricket farms that were popping up around the country after this report came out. And uh, I had you know, chatted about it at home and then uh, a few years ago, my husband, who works with a, a volunteer, he volunteers with a group that helps start up businesses, came home from one of his meetings and dropped a folder on my desk and said, I've got one for you to look at. And it was a startup <laughs> cricket farm in Vermont. And I said, oh, that's so great. That's so interesting. And he said, we're going to visit uh, it later next week. Do you want to come? I said, of course I want to come. And yeah. so, you know, when I visited this, this fledgling cricket farm, it had just moved out of a guy's basement into a, a warehouse in an industrial park, which that's what a cricket farm is. It's not, you know, fields and meadows, right. um, but it was, it was fascinating. And I, you know, asked some questions and I had been thinking about writing another mystery. And uh, I thought, what a fascinating setting this would be. And what an interesting thing to explore with kids, because kids are 
so much more open-minded than many of us. Uh, you know, when I was visiting schools to talk about chirp this winter, I always brought some flavored roasted crickets with me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all the kids wanted to try the roasted crickets at the bookstore yeah. events and, you know, and, uh, so it's really interesting. Kids are fascinated by this. Uh, and so it was really interesting to learn about that world, uh, to learn about the environment, environmental impacts of uh, farming insects compared to other kinds of agriculture. Um, and also just to learn about everyday life on a cricket farm. I, I shadowed the, uh, the guy in Vermont who runs, uh, who ran that cricket farm for a few days and you know, just saw all the different chores. And then I also visited a cricket farm in Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, to see how they do things. And that's one uh, where they've done a lot of automation. And so robots feed their crickets, which is also so cool, right? Yeah. And uh, so just really, really interesting to talk with people. And of course, you get to have fun conversations when you're writing a mystery. I got to, um, you know, ask the, the COO of Aspire Food Groups in Austin, if somebody wanted to sabotage your cricket farm, how would they go about doing that? And of course, he's like, well, I mean, don't, but, <laughs> right. you know, and so he actually was wonderful and gave me a lot of different ideas that I ended up using in the story. So that was where the, the cricket farming piece came in. I love it. Um, and now what I want to kind of dig into as well, because, um, you have so many books coming out in this year, um, some like chirp that have already been released, but I'd really love to dig into, uh, let's quickly kind of high level talk about, uh, all of the rest of the books you've got coming out. And also, um, after we go over those, I'd really love to know your background, uh, in becoming an author, what drove you into, um, into a career uh, an author career uh, and and what has been so rewarding as a result of it? Sure. So yeah, 2020 is just an absolutely wild year for me as far <laughs> as book releases go. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where nobody writes 12 books in a year, but what happened is books that I have written, you know, four and five and six and seven years ago, a whole bunch of them just landed on 2020. And so uh, I had Chirp come out, which is of course a novel. Um, I have a series that I'm winding up, uh, that's, that's winding down called the Ranger in Time series. And those are about a time traveling search and rescue dog who can go anywhere in history where people need help. So two of those books came out this year. Um, one, actually one this winter and then another one in uh, coming out um, this summer. Um, I write picture books as well. And so I had a book called The Next President come yes. out in March, which is, um, is kind of a funny story. I, I have this strange habit of looking up years on Wikipedia, just random years <laughs> when I'm, some people would call it procrastinating. I call it brainstorming and fostering curiosity. Um, but it's something I do every once in a while. I just look up years and I read about all the different things that happened that year all over the world and all the people who were born and all the people who died. And I think about connections and sometimes get a story idea. And uh, a few years ago, I was doing that and I was, I was reading about 1970 and I got to November and saw that Ronald Reagan was reelected governor of California that November and Jimmy Carter was elected governor of Georgia. And I thought, look at that. Both of those guys are going to be president someday. And they have no idea. I was enchanted by this and fascinated. And so I made this giant chart. I went down this absolute rabbit hole of research 
trying to figure out when every president was sworn into office, how many future presidents were alive then? So for example, when George Washington became America's first president, there were nine future presidents already alive in the United States. And some of them, of course, were serving in government already. Adams was vice president, Jefferson was secretary of state, uh, but others were you know, just growing up on the frontier and they were fishing and helping on their family farms and things. So it's a book about where future presidents were when given any given president took office, but also a book that wonders and imagines where our future presidents are right now and what might they be doing right now. So that's kind of fun to think about too. Yeah. I love that. It's so, it's so great. I mean, I think I've heard a lot about, uh, you know, John Adams and Jefferson uh, lately, thanks to Hamilton on Disney plus. So um, you were like Jefferson was secretary of state. And I'm like, yes, I, I'm well aware. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Fantastic performance. Um, uh, well, I want to take a second before we move on and just let everybody know that today's episode is sponsored by Snuffy. Snuffy is a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. So shop online now at snuffy.ca. O, that's S-N-U-F-F-Y dot C-O uh, to support it today. And the owner and operator of Snuffy is Nick Silvestri. He designed the new Detox logos, both the regular one and the Pride logo. So if you like that and you want to go support him, go check it out, snuffy.co. All right, so moving on, I want to uh, kind of really dig into um, your, you know, we talked about the different books, but, you know, as I alluded to before, I'd really love to know what was your uh, genesis for pursuing uh, a book writing career and what was something that really kind of shifted um, your mindset into going, this is what I want to pursue full time? Sure. So... I've always loved writing since I was a little kid. I've written poetry and stories. And um, even when I was you know, six and seven years old, I, I loved research and I was always so curious. And I was that nerdy second grader who would assign myself reports to do and no. say, oh, mom, dad, I have to go to the library this weekend. I have a five page report on sharks due on Monday. Of course I had assigned the, the report. Um, right. But I, I always loved you know, writing and, and wondering about things like that. Um, but it was really when I was teaching, I used to teach middle school. Uh, I taught seventh grade English on an interdisciplinary team with a math and social studies and science teacher. And it was really while I was teaching that I started writing more seriously. And the very first books I wrote were books for my students, um, you know, that were, were exploring things that they were learning in their lives, whether that was local history near Lake Champlain, where I live, or, uh, you know, my very first nationally published novel is a book called The Brilliant Fall of Gianna Z which is about a kid who has this giant school leaf collection project that takes over her life. And that of course was a project that the science teacher on my team at the middle school had assigned. And so <laughs> um, I was writing for, you know, for my kids, whether they were my students or my own kids. Um, and then um, transitioned from teaching and writing to writing full-time in 2012. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's interesting. I'm always still writing for, for my kids. It's just that they're all my kids now, <laughs> right. um, you know, and uh, particularly a series that a new series that's launching this summer called History Smashers uh, grew out of a real need that I saw uh, with with school curriculum. And that is 
a lot of the stories that we have taught children about history are not true. Right. Uh, they are, they are, you know, myths, often patriotic myths, where we leave out a lot of things in the interest of having it be a good story for kids and a happy story. And uh, but, but in that, in that, in doing that, we're also telling stories that just aren't true. And the myth of the first Thanksgiving is a classic example of that. Um, so the History Smasher series is illustrated graphic nonfiction. Uh, illustrated by Dylan McConus, who is an amazing comic artist and graphic novelist who did the book Queen of the Sea. Uh, but History Smashers is all about unraveling the lies and myths that we tend to teach little kids about history. So the first two books, which are out this summer, are History Smashers Mayflower, which of course tells the true story of the pilgrims and the <laughs> Wampanoag people and what was not at all the first Thanksgiving, but that event that caused people to say it was the first Thanksgiving. And then the other one uh, that we launched with is History Smashers Women's Right to Vote, which is all about the women's suffrage movement in America. Um, you know, the stories that, that you've heard that maybe are true and the stories that are not true. And also some of the stories that we tend to leave out when we talk mm. to kids about famous suffragists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, both of whom, you know, did and said some really racist things in trying yeah. to get white women the vote. Uh, you know, those are uncomfortable stories to tell, but again, I'm pretty big on honesty and, and kids are really big on honesty. They want to know the truth of what happened. And when they learn, oh, wait, it's not that story that I heard in kindergarten, uh, they are equal parts indignant and fascinated and they can't wait to learn the truth and dig into the documents and see what really happened. So it's been a really uh, amazing series to work on and um, really excited that those first two books are out uh, in time for the start of school this fall. Definitely. And I also love that Women's Right to Vote is coming out here a hundred years uh, for, for, from the women getting the right, from women getting the right to vote. Um, yeah, yeah. So both of these books, we chose these two titles in particular to start with uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, both of the stories have been mythologized, right. uh, you know, in, in the way we tell the stories to kids, but also we're dealing with anniversaries. It's the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing and the 100th anniversary of white women getting the right to vote with the 19th yes. Amendment. That's right. Thank you for the correction there. And, you know, I... I, I heard as well, uh, it was, uh, I'm, I'm modifying something that a former guest, Scott Miller, came on and said he was talking about a management book and how he uh, had this principle. And I'm going to apply it in this situation to talking to our kids. And I'm going to modify it a bit in that he was talking about, um, you know, I can deal with bad news. I'm used to getting bad news. That's fine as long as I know about it. I can take in the information. I can adjust. I can figure out a course of action, move forward. What I can't deal with is wrong news because that sets me off for failure and gets me pointed in the wrong direction. And it takes me a long time to, to recalibrate from that. And so I would say the same is true when we're thinking about what we're teaching our children. Uh, uncomfortable truths and, you know, quote unquote, bad news is tough, but necessary to tell so we can understand it and we can learn from it and we can understand um, what happened and, you know, take the lessons learned and then improve upon them as opposed to wrong news and, and truly, you know, for lack of a better word, whitewashing a lot of the history to where 
we're set up for failure. We're setting our kids up for failure because they're no longer aware of the true struggles, um, good and bad of our history. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. I think kids are so much better equipped to deal with truth than yes, we give them yes. credit for too. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating, you know, to talk with kids about these issues. I was, uh, the, the very last school visit that I did as an author before everything sort of shut down with the pandemic, uh, I was visiting a, a pretty small school in Vermont and I was, had done my morning presentations and I was having lunch with a group of second graders and their librarian. And uh, one of the boys, a second grader, was telling me how much he loved history and how much he loved the picture books his librarian was bringing in and uh, about history. And I said, oh, you know what? I just read one that I think you would love. And it was a picture book called um, Ona Judge Outwits the Washingtons by Gwendolyn <laughs> Hooks. And so I told him about it. I said, it's about a woman who was enslaved by George Washington and she escaped and she never got caught. And he looked at me, he said, what, what? And I repeated <laughs> it. I said, it's about a woman who was enslaved by George Washington, but she escaped and she never got caught. And he said, George Washington had slaves? Mm. And I said, yeah, he enslaved hundreds of people on his plantation in Virginia. And yeah. I waited to let him, you know, again, you give the answer and you give time to process. <laughs> right. And, and so he thought, he looked at me for a minute and his eyes got big and he said, I thought George Washington was a good guy. Mm. Now there's some complexity, right? And this is a right. second grader, but he's processing. I said, I said, yeah, I said, he's honored in our country. And a lot of things are named after him because he, you know, he led the continental troops during the American Revolution, which is, of course, um, you know, why America is a country. And he was the first president. I said, those things are true, but it's also true that he enslaved people. Yeah. And again, I waited. I gave him some time and he just looked at me and he nodded. And then he turned to his library and I, and, oh, and then I mentioned him. I said, I actually have a series of books coming out about stories like this that tell the truth about historical figures and it's called history smashers i told him a little about it and he nodded he turned to his library and he said can you get those for us please and she nodded <laughs> she said i already wrote them down he goes and get that one about that lady who escaped from george washington too she nodded she goes i already wrote it down um you know but i'm, I'm so grateful that we have librarians and 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 families who are willing to share these stories because Kids are really complex thinkers and they can deal with the fact that more than one thing can be true about somebody who's looked at as a historical hero. Um, right. it's, it's really been amazing to talk with kids about a lot of these things. Absolutely. And I, and I know we're, we're getting ready to wrap for and head into our final segment of the show, but I'd love to, to ask you, you know, this show specifically, our mission statement here is that we're a podcast dedicated to educating and empowering the listeners to raise inclusive kids. And so with that in mind, I'd love to know, is there one more piece of advice you'd like to give our listeners about ways in which they can start these conversations early to really and truly raise inclusive kids who are going to help the, change the world for the better? Yeah, that's an easy one for me. I think a book is always the best way to start yes. a conversation. Um, when I think of, of bringing up our kids they learned so much because we read a story together and then talked about it, you know, whether that was a book like Chirp where, where we're dealing with, you know, an uncomfortable issue about consent and, and Me Too, 
or a story about history where you read something and they say, wait, I didn't know that. And then you get to talk about it. Um, so I, I think stories are always the, the best way in. And, and especially, I think, uh, for, for white parents, um, you know, if, if your bookshelf features mostly people who look like your family, you're not really opening those windows for kids, you know? Yes. Um, and you're not really inviting them in to, to recognize other people's lives and other people's cultures and, and, you know, the fact that we're all here together. And um, so I, I really believe in a, a, a great diverse bookshelf. And uh, it's interesting. I, I, like I said, I visit a lot of schools as an author and sometimes I'll visit a school in a primarily white community and I look around at the books and those books reflect that community. And other yeah. times I'll visit a school in a community like that where the books reflect everybody. And I think about what a richer experience those students are getting. Um, you know, all of our kids need a fantastic diverse bookshelf. Um, you know, um, so, you know, Rudine Sims Bishop uh, was, you know, the person who, who coined that whole windows and mirrors and sliding glass doors analogy, but it really is essential. And, and sometimes people will say, well, our community isn't that diverse. So, oh, oh, well, well, no, you need those books just as much as anybody else. So I think books are always the best way to, um, to start that conversation. Absolutely. I love it. Absolutely love it. So you'll need to go and pick up History Smashers, Chirp, um, everything else from Kate Messner. It is absolutely fantastic. But now we are going to transition into the final segment of the show. Uh, my favorite segment, it's the dad joke of the week. It is a segment where I hurl dad jokes at my unsuspecting guest in an attempt to get them to laugh while the audience groans, but I can't hear the audience. I can only hear my guest, so it works out for me. Uh, but I always like to throw my guest off and ask them if they have any jokes they would like to contribute up front. So Kate, do you have any jokes you would like to tell us today? Oh, I have, a, I have a great one for you. Oh, perfect. Um, but before I tell the joke, I actually have to tell you, I live in a really rural area. Okay. And um, I was, we were driving down the road the other day, and you know those round bales of hay that you see sometimes in fields? Yes. They've outlawed those. Like, they're banned now where I live. Oh. They're, they're just Wait. not allowed anymore. That's... They can't be round like that. Uh. Did you want to ask me why? Why? Because the cows can't get a square meal. Uh, <laughs> so if that isn't, I, I'm curious uh, than whatever you're going to tell me. That oh, was that's terrible. Good. It's my favorite I was just, terrible joke. Oh, I was just sitting here thinking about the legal ramifications. Like, why would they outlaw the, and I, I forgot it was my own joke segment. Oh my goodness. I bet. I've been gotten. So when I heard that joke, I actually was, uh, before I was a writer, I was a teacher. Before I was a teacher, I was a journalist. Um, and I was actually doing a news story. I was a reporter and I had been interviewing this border patrol agent up by the Canadian border and, and um, talking about, you know, very serious issues about border security. This was, you know, probably 15 years ago, uh, 20 years ago. And um, and I was doing a ride along with him, you know, and it was 10 o'clock at night and we're riding along and we're looking at the different border checkpoints and we happened to pass some of these round bales of hay. And he said, hey, those are outlawed now, you know, we don't allow those anymore. And I said, oh, is it because people hide behind them? And he <laughs> said, no, it's because the cows can't get a square meal. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's perfect. That is perfect. I love it. You know, you said you said 
Border Patrol, and I instantly, you know, I'm in Texas, so Border Patrol means something different down here. No, it's, um, yes, and I live near the Canadian border, so it's right. a very different situation. Right, we're just at opposite ends of the, of the country. Um, but now I've got I've got a couple jokes. So um, mine are all bug themed because I was uh, you know reading chirp. So I've got a couple for you. So so first of all, Kate, uh, how do bees brush their teeth? I don't know how. With a honeycomb. With a honeycomb. <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, what do you call a bug that can't have too much sugar? That can't have too much sugar. Yes. I don't know what. A diabetal. A diabetal. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, last one, last one. <clears throat> Kate, why couldn't the butterfly go to the dance? The butterfly. I don't know. You got me stumped again. Uh, because it was a mothball. Oh. It was a mothball. All now, right. <laughs> I have to tell you, you just you, you just segued into another book recommendation. Lori right. Griffin Burns has a new book out called You're Invited to a Mothball. Did you know that a mothball is a real thing? I did not, actually. It is. So it's it's the name for these parties that entomologists throw in their yards with lights and uh, nectar on the trees to draw moths. And so Lori, uh, who's an author friend of mine and a scientist friend, staged a mothball in her yard. And, and so it's this book about all the different kinds of moths you can see in your yard. That is fantastic. Well, listeners, definitely go check that out. Um, and Kate, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? So I am pretty active on Twitter. I'm just at Kate Messner there. And then my website is www.katemessner.com. And you can read all about my books and all kinds of things there. Perfect. All right. Uh, thank you again, Kate, for coming on. We do need a hashtag for this episode. Should we go with hashtag chirp? Yeah, that works. Perfect. All right. Well, Kate, thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight. I really appreciate it. Oh, I love talking with you, and I did like those jokes, too. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, listeners, we'll be back next week with another great episode. But until next time, hashtag chirp and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit VocalNow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.